Hey all, I am uh, Dr. Sharice Brennan-Selly or Dr. CBS. Um, in the fall of 2022, I will start my position as Associate Professor of African-American Studies at Wayne State University. Um, and right now I am finishing up my term um, as the 2021-2022 Visiting Scholar with the Race and Capitalism Project at uh, University of Chicago. Awesome, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with me. And I'm really excited to go into um, an article that you wrote for the monthly review and just in general, your work on the theory of modern racial capitalism. So when I encountered and when I read the article, what struck me was the emphasis on militarism and empire as central aspects of the modern racial capitalism. So if you don't mind beginning by introducing the concept, kind of how you came to it and expanded on it from previous iterations of it, um, and then would love to talk more through the theory. Yeah, sure. So um, in that article, which is called uh, Modern U.S. Racial Capitalism, Some Theoretical Insights, I defined modern U.S. racial capitalism as a racially hierarchical political economy constituting war and militarism, um, imperialist accumulation, expropriation by domination, and labor super exploitation. And that was sort of a reconfiguration of an earlier um, theorizing of just racial capitalism that I did for this small acts article that was a like a long form review of Peter James Hudson's On Baker and Empire, which was actually my first time really sitting down to theorize systematically um, racial capitalism. And so there I defined it slightly differently as a war driven racially hierarchical global system constituting white supremacist accumulation, dependent extraction, imperial expropriation, labor super exploitation and neo-colonial absorption of capital risk. Um, and then I'll just add that in my book, Black Scare, Red Scare, which is will come out sometime in 2023. Um, I use the conceptual framework of US capitalist racist society, which I define as a racially hierarchical political economy and social order constituting the structural location of blackness, labor super exploitation, expropriation by domination and ongoing primitive accumulation. And that is linked to um, Wall Street imperialism, which I call the sort of highest stage of US capitalist racism um, and define as the partnership between big business and US government through which monopoly finance capital was consolidated. The Negro question animated the relationship between the political economies of the US North and South and the structural location of blackness took on a national character. Um, expropriation abroad reified racial colonial domination and war and militarism became a key tool of accumulation. And so in my book, I sort of separate out U.S. capitalist racism and Wall Street imperialism, they're mutually constitutive, but sort of when I talk about like war, for example, and um, some other aspects that I previously attributed to, to racial capitalism, I talk about them in the context of, of imperialism. And all of that to say, like, I'm still working out <laughs> what I think to be the relationship between racial capitalism and imperialism. Because on the one hand, there's the idea of Oliver Cromwell Cox that imperialism, so okay, so first there's like the sort of Leninist framework where imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism. But then Oliver Cox argues that it's not, imperialism is not the highest stage of capitalism, it's constitutive of capitalism as such because of the way that the capitalist world system is relying upon foreign trade. And not only foreign trade, but the relations of domination that 
always already developed between um, a, the sort of imperial nation and the nation that is being sort of conscripted into the, the, the sort of economic imperatives of the dominating um, nation or city state or whatever. So, and I, I kind of toggle between both of those. And so I still sort of am thinking about the relationship between um, um, racial capitalism and imperialism. But part of, I guess, the way from all of these different definitions, part of what I'm pushing back on is this idea of capitalism as just, you know, the free exchange of, of goods and services between firms and individuals. Like, that's not what capitalism is, right? That there's these um, relations of, of domination and expropriation and that ultimately those processes are constitutively um, rooted in violence. And so that's why I try to have, you know, these descriptive um, articulations like, you know, expropriation by domination or um, um, labor super exploitation, um, ongoing primitive accumulation, because these are not benign or just simply like um, equal relationships. They're very much rooted in, in processes of sort of, of plunder and um, um, unequal relationships. So to make a short story long, that, that is modern U.S. racial capitalism and its different iterations. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and in reading the, the article is really, you know, captivated by kind of expanding the idea of uh, the ideas of Cedric Robinson and applying them to militarism and imperialism and the different thinkers you mentioned. So I also looked at the Small Axe article um, and you were mentioning some different thinkers also within um, the Communist Party or within communism broadly in the United States uh, and how they were theorizing um, racial capitalism, but theorizing about the U.S. dominance over Liberia, for example, and how related it was between imperialism and racism. And this kind of, you know, also like another theme throughout your work as well, um, anti-Blackness and anti-communism in particular. So I wonder how you made the connection as well between these two uh, kind of expressions of racial capitalism in the United States against these oppositional forces, um, how they're, how intricately related they are. If it is that we're thinking about like racial capitalism, right? Sort of what are the modes of domination and narration or legitimation that preserve those? So this sort of the way that one preserves racism, anti-Black racism, anti-Black racial oppression in particular is anti-Blackness, right? Um, the way that one preserves capitalism is through these discourses of, of anti-radicalism uh, anti for which anti-communism is kind of a synecdoche. Um, because one needs to sort of criminalize, delegitimize and suppress forms of mobilization and organizing and um, institution building that's fundamentally challenges capitalism. Likewise, in a racial capitalist society, one needs to fundamentally um, discredit, delegitimize and criminalize um, forms of mobilizing and organizing and institution building that try to challenge uh, racial hierarchy. And what's peculiar about the United States is that with respect to blackness, because of um, the the you know the condition of possibility of the United States being um, a slaveocracy, 
and enslavement becoming reducible to blackness and blackness becoming synonymous with enslavement is that any sort of struggle for black liberation is objectively a challenge to racial capitalism and is um, objectively seen as radical. And this is irrespective of ideology, right? So even somebody as conciliatory as like a Booker T. Washington, if it even his any basic challenge um, to white supremacy by him needs to be sort of codified through um, at least a, a explicit discourse of black subjection. That is to say that there's a way that race radicalism um, can be quite confusing because it can be sort of routed in the reproduction of capitalism, but because it is challenging racial hierarchy and because racial hierarchy is absolutely central to accumulation in the context of the United States, um, it can be seen as radicalism writ large, which then raises the question of all sorts, you know, all sorts of contradictions with the black bourgeoisie being race hustlers and blah, blah, blah. But the point is that for, um, for me, the question um, just arose about why it is that the U.S. and its institutions, including academia, seem to be so deeply hostile to Marxism um, and to adjacent forms of radicalism. And then if one studies the United States, going back at least to the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798, one might discover that the, the U.S. is as sort of anti-radical as it is sort of anti black freedom, anti-Black liberation. And so I began to sort of think about why it is that those two were entwined, which then leads you to racial capitalism. And then on the other side, if you're thinking about racial capitalism, you think about how class and race are deeply, um, they deeply inform each other um, in terms of how um, power and exploitation, oppression, et cetera, operate in this country. And, and even beyond the United States, like something in your article that was really fascinating to me was the connection with Neville Alexander and his analysis of South Africa mm -hmm. um, and connecting kind of, you know, how this extends beyond just the United States and plays a role in other settler colonial societies. So I wonder also, you and throughout the article mentioning as well that, that in this context, of course, capitalism is never not racial. Um, I think as the scholar, uh, you quoted Gilmore, Mm -hmm. um, put it. So, you know, I, I wonder also that connection between uh, Neville Alexander's analysis of South Africa and your analysis of the United States, like, is, is there sort of a shared comparison in, in societies that have been impacted by settler colonialism and how racial capitalism manifests uh, within those societies? Yeah, absolutely. So part of, so, so the term racial capitalism, there's sort of two different maybe genealogies. There's like the Cedric Robinson genealogy, and then there's the South African genealogy that include people like um, Neville Alexander, um, Bernard Magubani, Legasic, and others. And so I'm, you know, I'm indebted to the scholar Peter James Hudson um, for pointing this out, right? So I knew nothing about this genealogy until he wrote a piece in the Boston Review. And later, uh, we collectively wrote a piece for um, the Black Agenda Review about this sort of South African genealogy of racial capitalism. And, and in part of what the South African iteration is arguing, it's really, it, it's really a political economy analysis, whereas Cedric Robinson's is more political philosophy. Um, as, as Hudson argues, and, and part of what they're thinking through is how the system of apartheid is rooted in the institutionalization of global capitalist 
imperatives within the sort of mining capitalism in particular in South Africa and the way that um, racialization, particularly the sort of repression of, of Black workers on the one hand and the valorization of white workers on the other was foundational to the codification of apartheid later on and the sort of the way that, you know, as Fanon puts it, you know, you are rich because you are white, you are white because you are rich. So that invocation of sort of race and accumulation on the one hand and blackness and um, subjection or blackness and um, impoverished, you know, em impoverishment on the other hand, that that is so racial capitalism became the way that they're working that out. Um, in the writings of, of um, Kwame Nkrumah, he'll talk about racist capitalism with respect to, to the South African context. And so South Africa on the continent was really a fundamental manifestation of the integral link between racial domination, so white racial domination and capitalist accumulation, which obviously is very much parallel to the situation in the United States. The difference uh, being, of course, that in South Africa, African people are the majority. And in the United States, we, um, we are a minoritized group and, and numerically smaller. And so thinking alongside Neville, so Neville Alexander and, and the racial capitalist school, if you want to call it that, are thinking, who they come out of the sort of black consciousness uh, movement of the 1970s, but that theory resonates with my own insofar as they're looking at a particular enunciation or a particular manifestation of racial capitalism in one state. And so likewise, when I talk about modern US racial capitalism, I'm talking about the US iteration. And even though racial capitalism is a global system, there are particularities to the United States. And part of the way reason why, you know, racial capitalism is particularly salient in the United States is because of the rise of the United States to global hegemony um, and becoming the capitalist leader, right? taking off in World War I and consolidating perhaps by World War II as the new global hegemon. And as such, the way that the racial logics and the, the, racial, the racial logics, the racial formation, and then the sort of the economic modalities through which race operates being exported through US empire and being exported through US economic interests, um, not uniformly and not in a way that is a direct implanting of, of the US, of US Jim Crow, for example, but very much infusing that into other forms of other racial formations that were extant in places like the Caribbean, in Liberia, um, in the Philippines, et cetera. And so um, it's important to think about, you know, hold those two together, like the US sort of enunciation of racial capitalism and then within a broader system of, of racial capitalism writ large. And in that, you you quote um, W.E.B. Du Bois and, and his uh, excellent analysis of World War One um, and the root of World War One being, of course, the Berlin Conference. And I I thought the part of the article where you put this in distinction with Lenin's theory of imperialism was very revealing to show that Lenin, to a certain extent, kind of glosses over that part of interimperialist rivalry over over Africa in particular. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that too, about how this theory potentially agrees with some points that have been put out by Lenin and other theorists of imperialism, but ultimately is asserting perhaps a different form of analysis more close to that of W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they, you know, somewhere Du Bois is referred to as like our American Lenin, right? But one might also argue that Lenin is what like our African-American 
whatever, or like, you know, yeah, our, our, our Russian Du Bois, I don't know. But so they're contemporaneous and there's not a lot of evidence that like Du Bois was reading Lenin or vice versa. Um, but I think that they're analyzing the same global conditions, right? Which is leading them to um, a particular type of analysis. The struggles in which they're engaged are different, right? Because, you know, the Bolsheviks, um, and then the boys in like the NAACP at that time, they have different, they're engaged in different struggles at the same time that they're understanding how it is that what Du Bois calls like the color line and imperialism are implicated. And then Lenin is engaging the national question and the colonial question and um, capitalism and imperialism at a particular historical moment. And so um, I don't necessarily pit them against each other, right? But it's sort of like, how do we think with both of these scholars and why is, you know, what they prioritize different things for a particular reason. Du Bois is fundamentally Afrocentric in the sort of ecumenical sense, not in the Asantean sense, but if you read people like Tony Montero um, um, and others, they talk about a sort of Du Boisian Afrocentrism whereby Africa is a locus of enunciation, right? Um, and so that gives him a particular type of analysis and understanding of like what's at stake in a conflict, in an imperial conflict like World War I. Um, Whereas Lenin might have other types of concerns, not least because of um, the way the national question and this idea of national minorities fundamentally impacts the USSR that's in formation um, um, after the Bolshevik revolution. And so I think it's just, it's a different sort of matter of emphasis. And I think we um, both are useful, both are fruitful. Uh, for me, I, I think because my sort of, the Negro question in a, in a broad sense is sort of what I interrogate, right? Um, as, a, as, a, as a structural location or a function of, of the way that race and class are inseparable, Du Bois's African roots of war is very instructive for, to, uh, to think about that, even though he's not talking about the United States, he's talking about a project in which the US, US imperialism is inscribed. Um, but then Lenin is also important because a lot of the fingers, the, the fingers in the, the CPUSA um, or around that formation, um, a lot of those fingers are drawing on Lenin and, and even and Stalinism to a certain degree in terms of, of the national question and um, how that informs like the Black Belt Nation thesis and the Negro question. So um, they're both important, I think. And, and another subject that Lenin sort of briefly gets to in his analysis, but doesn't expand upon it really significantly, like he touches on super exploitation a little bit. But I think in, in your article, you talk more about how thinkers like Claudia Jones really expanded on that idea more and made it far more applicable as the source of uh, US racial capitalism. So can you also explain a little bit more about the theorizing of super exploitation with respect to racial capitalism? Yeah, so how I came to racial capitalism is through super exploitation. Is, that is to say that I was like, oh, well, when they're talking about super exploitation, it seems to me that they're talking about what we now call racial capitalism. Um, that is to say the conjuncture of exploitation and oppression whereby a different mode of um, expropriation and extraction manifest over and above that of the white working class. And so these are people like uh, Claudia Jones, Harry Haywood, uh, James Ford, um, Otto Weiswood, Grace Campbell. So these are the sort of people who are in um, and around the Communist Party who are thinking about 
primarily in the South, that the root of Black super exploitation is in the South, namely the back, the Black Belt, which in their analysis um, retains much of the feudal form of 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 um, of the of the slaveocracy, right? Of the slavery epoch, in that basically, given that reality, um, the way that surplus value is extracted from black people is extraordinarily intent and extraordinarily violent and redounds to the benefit of white workers, not equally, of course. So this is not to say that white workers and the white uh, capitalists or the white ruling class benefit equally, not least because the weight, the wages of whiteness, so to speak, or what we might call epidermal capital for white workers is mostly psychological, but it also is social, right? There is a way that, um, and the other important part of super exploitation is how the law sort of codifies or doesn't protect any recourse from exploitation for black folks in the way that it does for white folks. And so that's one way that like white workers benefit is that there's some aspect of recourse for them um, in ways that there are not for black people. They have comparatively better wages, comparatively better working conditions, um, comparatively better, uh, a more, a better array of jobs. But the contra the fundamental contradiction is that the super exploitation of black people drives all wages down. It drives all working conditions and living conditions down. And this seems to be the, the contradiction is that this doesn't figure into the way that uh, white unionization and white, white organizing operates by and large, right? Black people really have to push for that analysis. Um, and it's primarily, you know, communists and other types of sort of um, um, economic radicals who are making this argument because even the early socialists are saying, you know, reducing the race problem to a class problem. But the idea of super exploitation is that these, it's not that these are separate, they're inter integrally linked, but we have to take super exploitation as a category in and of itself that particularly and uniquely affects those racialized as black, so. And in the article you, you quoted um, Hubert Harrison, this line that, that I thought was very powerful in that subject, which was saying um, black workers form a group is more essentially proletarian than any other American group. And, and as you were just saying, you know, the implications for that with respect to unionism, left-wing organizing, anti-capitalist organizing are, are huge because that, as you just pointed out, is directly flying in the face of a lot of the early analysis of the American Communist Party. So, you know, what, in your opinion, you know, implications does this have on the extent of political organizing we should have in the United States and, and the focus of anti-capitalist organizing? You know, there's so much, there's so much sort of difference of opinion about this, right? And, and you know, I, I guess the idea of centering the white worker is that there's just more white people here. But I don't necessarily know that focusing on numbers is the right thing. The, the, the content and intensity of exploitation, I think is very, very important. Again, because that, whatever the bottom is sets the tone for everybody else, right? And also if, in a fundamental way, we might talk about a process we might call like niggerization. As um, resources and capital become what more polarized, the conditions that strictly speaking belong to the blacks then get applied to everybody. So a, a related sort of analysis is when Aimee Cesare talks about how fascism is what you know, white people call 
violence when they start getting treated like the colonized. So similarly, if we look at the conditions and the material realities of Black people, we can sort of foresee what the possibility is for other people, right? Whiteness offers a particular buffer, but not for everybody and not in a trans historical way. And so I think that that really is the importance of focusing on um, the condition to which black folks are subjected, right? So the forms of environmental racism, um, the flexibilization of labor that hit black people. This, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers were talking about niggermation and how the very the speed up was built on the blacks of the backs of the most oppressed workers in like four plants, for example, i.e., black people. The way that um, auto automation and um, um, technocracy, or the the you know the the rise of, of the technical the the technical specifications of labor push black people out first, right? It pushes them out first, but once they're gone, then other groups of laborers are next, right? And so I think that that's the importance of really understanding super exploitation and more broadly like racial capitalism is that these are conditions that first affect the colonized and the racialized, but then they go on to affect everybody else. Now, the problem is like racism, like though the ubiquitous and endemic like racism and inve particular investments in white supremacy that <laughs> that make white leftists especially in the united states um hostile to forms of quote-unquote third worldism or, or like global south marxisms um it makes them hostile to black people within the united states or black leadership so it's like there will be in organizations with their black folks as long as their you know black folks are subordinated or not um, superordinated, um, and this just proves to be a, the white supremacy is very very durable in that way, um, and this is why we need to you know underscore the reality that we're in a um a settler colonial racial capitalist society because it pulls out all of those contradictions that white folks like to subsume under class if they have a class analysis at all. Um, but historically, there is a way that race has stood in for class um, in the context of the United States. And so black people need to be mindful of that as well, that the race analysis is also attending to class because especially by the 1960s, they're, they're the um, class stratification or the class antagonism within um, with intraracially has, been heightened such that you know for example black elites were very much invested in the uh, invested in the expansion of um the prison industrial complex if you will the expansion of policing in ways that fundamentally impacted poor and working black people and not necessarily to this and not to the same extent you know black um petty bourgeois um or or, or black elite folks and so I really think, especially in the context of the United States, in the context of the United States, we really need to pay attention to black people. And it's not just labor. It's not, this is why it's not just labor, super exploitation, it's expropriation. It's these other forms of, um, these other economic functions, right? And then globally, we really have to pay attention to neo-colonialism and imperialism, which incorporate forms of direct colonial rule and then forms of like corporate imperial <laughs> domination. Because these are the these are the structures that pull out the most surplus value. These are the structures that make plunder and complete dispossession legitimate, 
right? Um, this is people like taking your shit for free. <laughs> and that is fundamental. Part of talking about ongoing primitive accumulation is that this is fundamental to each epoch of capitalist accumulation, to, to all eras, right? But the way that it's legitimated, the way that it's um, rationalized or even sort of uh, marginalized can shift over time. But that, that direct form of domination is really, really central to, to the reproduction of capital. And, and with that, what I found um, you know, interesting in your analysis and, and also in, in other analysis of this problem is an ability to point out the situation of African-Americans domestically in the United States uh, and the similarity of it to you know, people on the African continent or in the, in the Caribbean. Um, and I wonder with that, to what extent you agree, and, and some of this analysis came also from South Africa and understanding the colonialism of a special type, internal colonialism. I wonder to what extent you, you perceive uh, the situation for African-Americans domestically as well as a product of some type of internal colonialism or, for example, you mentioned in the article, the Black Belt thesis as this idea of kind of an internal colony within the United States. So when thinking about primitive accumulation as ongoing, of course, people tend to associate that with some colonial extraction to an extent. To what extent should we understand uh, you know, African-Americans as well as sort of a colonized population in, in a sort of special way, but it, in a way comparable to that in Africa and the Caribbean? I'm very sympathetic to that analysis. So people from, um, you know, Robert Allen to um, Kwame Ture, um, to Harold Cruz, to, you know, the CP have had that analysis. The problem with the, the problem with um, the Black Belt Nation thesis is that, and the problem with a lot of um, CPUSA analysis writ large is that they don't pay attention to settler colonialism or the issue of land back. So it's not really our land, our being Black people, it's not really our land to, to give or take. That being said, it is a negotiation between Black and indigenous folks. The US government has absolutely nothing to do with that. But I think that what is most useful about the Black Belt Nation thesis is the national character, the national character of, of Black oppression. That is to say, it's not discrimination, it's not marginalization, um, it's not tastes or attitude or custom. It is fundamentally rooted in economic and, um, and, and sort of economic imperative, and it's codified in the political, um, the political sort of power, legal architecture, and even in jurisprudence. And so I think that is what is important about um, thinking about, you know, Black people as internally colonized, on top of the fact that we're in a settler colony, we're in a colonial situation. And part of what, you know, I try to argue thinking with people like Nick Estes and uh, Manu Karuka is that imper imperialism is internal to the United States as well, right? That the imperial logics in a settler colony, the imperial sort of workings are internal. They're even built into the constitution. So indigenous um, um, dispossession um, is imperialism, <laughs> right? And part, of, and part of what Cox talks about the condition of possibility for the US rise to global hegemony is it's sort of internal forms of imperialism, right? So on the one hand, enslavement, and on the other hand, dispossession that allows for massive amounts of accumulation that then are invested in these sort of 
um, imperial projects abroad um, in the Philippines, in Cuba, Puerto Rico, Central America. So part of what Peter James Hudson's book, Bank, um, Banking and Empire, is about is the internationalization of, of U.S. banking um, that was a partnership between private banks and the U.S. government in places like Central America and the Caribbean um, that allowed for massive amounts of, of accumulation. But again, part of what he points out is the condition of possibility of that is indigenous dispossession, the way that particular banking families accumulated land and resources in like Kansas, right? Um, so we have to think about, so, so part of what thinking about Black people as internally colonized does is it allows us to link, for example, AFRICOM or the Africa Command with the 1033 program or the, military, the US federal government's militarization of local and state police. And so the work in my organization, um, Black Alliance for Peace, this is part of what we do. That and it's not just a metaphor, like this is it's, it's material, the material relations and the, the forms of policy, right? So for example, when you have um, a surplus of high powered weapons, of tanks, of helmets, of particular types of, uniform, of, of uniforms, they don't throw them away. <laughs> they give grants to the state and local police forces. And then those police forces use them against the very people who are organizing for a better way of life, um, whether it's for racial justice or economic justice. Um, sometimes we connect them, oftentimes we don't, but those are the people who are brutalized, right? Um, though, those, you know, those are the police forces that, that enforce the laws like the anti-protest laws that passed in many states, including Florida. Um, and so what we need to understand is that as there's more and more concentration of wealth at the top, those laws, um, the sort of strengthening and weaponization um, of those police forces, that that is to defend private property and resources against people. And that's precisely what's happening when we, when the United States goes to everywhere abroad, right? <laughs> Whether it's Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Somalia, um, the sort of the unyielding support of Israel, that these are, that these are the same types of, um, that these, that that sort of military support is happening here, that this is a, a feedback loop, because if the U.S. is fundamentally an imperialist, racial capitalist settler colony, the things that they do there they do here. And the other, I mean, I think the other thing we need to think about is as US empire reaches this asymptote, which one might argue it already has, that violence turns back inward. So <laughs> what are we gonna do? <laughs> well, that, was, that was, yeah, I completely agree. And that's a good point as well. The point you mentioned with Israel too, um, important because I think recently a lot of people, of course it's not like a recent analysis, but there's been an uh, especially relevant and urgent insight by many about the connections between uh, Israeli oppression of Palestinians and American oppression um, against African-Americans and other people in the United States. So yeah, the especially the military sharing between the two. Um, and, and that's a point I'd like to pick up on as well as you 
you talk about war and militarism as uh, ways to continually generate profits. So, you know, a very imperative part of this system of imperialism, um, in addition to having access to resources from, from Africa in particular and other underdeveloped places. And you also write um, the labor aristocracy in addition to the elite become more in support of militarism and war. So of course that, that's kind of like a two-folded thing. One is, you know, to what extent can we argue that war is conducted by the United States to a certain extent, take on this character of being racially racial capitalists. Um, and so immediately by that extent, especially, you know, I think uh, as you were mentioning Somalia, for example, but AFRICOM and wars in Africa in general, taking on this, this particularly racist nature. And then two, you know, you, so you wrote about the labor aristocracy, and I think that's very related to what we were talking about earlier of the, the increasing ability for the white working class to be kind of um, subordinate to this project and very much in favor of it. And yeah, I'm, I'm curious more about that because Lennon touched on that as well, but I think recently there's been a greater contextualization of, of the role that this plays in, in propping up US imperialism. But like you mentioned, a lot of people are still not convinced by that uh, particularly white leftists. So yeah, I'm, 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 you know, interested in the case to make for that, the existence of that labor aristocracy. Mm -hmm. Well, so in terms of war, right. So like part of thinking about racial capitalism as a war driven, racially hierarchical political economy is like, number one, how war has created the condition of possibility for the rise of the United States and two, where war is waged where hot wars are waged, which is always in racialized places, right? So there's an ongoing Cold War between the US and the Soviet Union, but what does that play out? Vietnam, Korea, Angola, Mozambique, right? Namibia. So that's one thing. That's the relationship between sort of like racialization and war. But if you think about it, if we think about U.S. takeoff, right? Rostow has these five stages of takeoff, but beside, beyond that, it's the Spanish-American War, which is the 1890s. And that's also, that is when the U.S. acquires these overseas territories. World War I is when the United States fundamentally shifts from being a um, debtor to a creditor nation, not least because Europe is embroiled in this war. And so U.S., so, so uh, New York becomes the, the global creditor, if you will. World War II, the U.S. enters into World War II comparatively late and is arming both sides <laughs> initially until, you know, the U.S. It finally is like, mm, the Nazis probably going to lose, so we're going to go with them. Let's be honest, right? And then after, and then out of World War I becomes uh, Bre the Bretton Woods Agreement, right? And the Bretton Woods Agreement is effectively imposing the free market throughout the world, including on Europe. The Marshall Plan is basically a way to have a particular, to turn Europe in a sense into a semi-periphery of the United States. And this persists to this day. This is why the EU is, <laughs> the US and NATO are probably not acting in their own uh, best interest at this moment at the behest of the United States, but I digress. Um, after World War II, we go immediately into, into the Korean War, right? Which is again, a war, that becomes about communism, right? And controlling communism um, among the racialized, right? So it's always this consternation. So part of what I write about with the concept of the Black Scare, Red Scare, which we haven't talked about, but it's like, there's always this 
consternation about radicalism among the blacks, right? Or the, or the coloreds. Anyway, um, then we go into the Vietnam War. After the Vietnam, then we have sort of like um, Desert Storm. So there's a way that we've been in a, you know, they talk about it uh, as perpet, you know, the century of like ongoing war, or perpetual war. But beyond those direct military conflicts, sanctions are a form of low intensity war. So somebody like um, Vijay Prashad is very, very sort of integral to that, um, to, to sort of bearing this out, right? Um, in the 1980s with the advent of structural adjustment, part of what that does is it conscripts the, through, through loans and debt, it conscripts massive parts of the, the global South into the orbit of, of US capital in a way that forces these nations to align with the US and particular types of imperial projects. Um, and then after the fall of the Soviet Union, right? This is ostensibly the end of history, right? This is, this is the sort of Tina, there is no alternative moment, which even more so, you know, forces particular types of alignments with the United States, of course, this fractures over time, right? Now we're in a, in a drive for multipolarity and we see how now nuclear war is back on the table in a, in a very callous and frightening way because the US would rather have total dominance than any type of multipolar world. But we also see many countries in the global South, at least in Africa are like, uh, they're not really with that shit, right? And this has to do with increasing relations with China, with Turkey and with other nations. Um, so for example, we saw how many African countries abstained from um, condemning um, you know, so-called Russian human rights violations. This is significant, um, but what's also significant is that the way that the United States and any crumbling empire um, holds on to their hegemony or holds on to their dominance is through militarism. That's also the fall of empire is the imperial overreach. We, if, we, if you follow like the cycles of hegemony, this is like Giovanni Arrighi, um, um, Andre, Andre Gundar Frank, a whole bunch of other people, right? They talk about, if you look at these cycles of accumulation, that imperial overreach is very, very foundational to the fall of, of the global hegemon. So to make a short story incredibly long, <laughs> I have rambled for a long time as one does, militarism has been very, very central to the way the United States has um, its drive for accumulation, its drive for um, um, consolidating, opening up and consolidating markets, and then its way of disciplining the rest of the world into um, accepting and capitulating to its rule on threat of invasion, on threat of embargo or sanctions, um, which is, is financial terrorism, it's economic terrorism, right? And this is how the United States operates, period. And so we're reaching the point where both internally and externally, people are reaching the limits of sort of negotiating the terms of their immiseration. And it can go either way. It's looking like it's gonna be fascism, but it could be socialism, I don't know. But, <laughs> but militarism is absolutely important to like the US and the way that it operates throughout the world to answer your question. <laughs> oh, the other question, what was yeah. it about? Sorry. About the labor aristocracy. Yeah, so the labor aristocracy. Um, yeah, so there's a, a ongoing debate about the labor aristocracy, but one way to understand that is how is it that our standard of living is possible, our being in the US and in the West more broadly. 
it is fundamentally facilitated by child labor, by expropriation, by environmental degradation, by the moving of industry to places where labor is largely not unionized. And this is one of pe like people's um, argument against the labor aristocracy is that since the, since the rise of globalization that because this labor has been moved abroad that US workers aren't benefiting from a labor aristocracy in the way that they, at, that, um, they have been previously. But again, we have to ask ourselves, iPhones should be, I think BJ Prasad talked about this recently, iPhones should be like $16,000 if we really paid what things cost. And that redounds to the United States. The United States, I think we're like 60% of the world's consumers, right? And so one might argue, okay, maybe this is a consumer aristocracy, but think about our wages are comparatively high. Again, our standard of living is comparatively high, not least because we um, consume a vast disproportionate amount of the world's energy, right? Fossil fuels, all of those things, right? All of those things were down to laborers in, or laborers in the global North, specifically in the United States. The other way we might think about labor aristocracy is if we think about something like Taft-Hartley, for example, in 1947, and how collaboration between union leaders or union bosses and capital have led for the overwhelming benefit of particular types of skilled labor to the detriment of the majority of, of laborers and how that kind of collaboration coupled with anti-communism did not improve the material conditions of, of many, many people, right? The way that the AFL um, in particular um, collaborated not only with anti-communism, but with particular um, conciliation with capital in ways that did not result in the improvement of the overwhelming majority of workers. So I think the labor aristocracy, I'm an academic. If you wanna see an archetype of labor aristocracy, it is academia. So the difference between tenured, tenure track and um, contingent faculty, between faculty and staff, between administration and faculty and staff, like it is textbook labor aristocracy. And so I think, um, it operates in many different ways um, domestically and in the context of the way that the global north continues to benefit, even as our conditions are deteriorating, we continue to benefit from the expropriation and ongoing primitive accumulation that happens um, abroad. Well, I, I absolutely agree with you there. Um, and I think people are beginning to contextualize this more in the context of recent developments. Um, well, thank you so much, Professor. It was a pleasure speaking to you and, and I really enjoyed your analysis and I, I highly recommend people listening read um, your monthly review article. But I would love for you, if you, if you want to um, shout out anything else that people can read anywhere they can find your work, um, you have yeah, some time if you wanna do some, some plugs. <laughs> sure, so my um, website uh, is dr-cbs.com and there's sort of tabs of like, by different types of work. Most of my articles are linked there. If folks are interested, they're linked for free. Um, and 
one um, edited collection that is dropping in October is with uh, Jody Dean and it's organized fight when black communist women's political writings and this is a super super important text. Um, it's the first collection of like black communist women's primary writings um, between 1919. In 1956, um, it includes writings by people like Eslanda Good Robeson, Claudia Jones, and not an into the neglect. An into the neglect is not in there because that's like the one writing that everybody knows, but it's her other really important writings about peace and women and and colonization of the Caribbean, self determination. Um, so Tyra Edwards, Lorraine Hansberry. Um, um, Dorothy Hunton. So there's a whole bunch um, of writings of people like more well-known and lesser known black communist and communist adjacent women around issues of, of fascism, of labor organizing, of triple oppression. Um, so that's a really, really important work. Um, and then in December of this year, uh, another co-edited volume with Percy Henson and Aaron Kamogisha and myself is called Reproducing um, Domination on the Post-Colonial Caribbean. And this is a collection of Percy Henson, um, his writings, uh, 13 essays um, about the Caribbean um, issues of like creolization, structural adjustment, um, post-colonial state formation. Um, and there's one article, my very first published article, he and I co-wrote um, about uh, Clive Thomas and, and socialism and state transformation. So that's one thing that's in there. I wrote the epilogue thinking about Percy Henson as a theorist of racial capitalism, even though this is not a term that he used, thinking about how his writings really give us a sense of racial capitalism and how it operates in the Caribbean. He's very, very important to me. He's my dissertation advisor and introduced me in a very fundamental way to um, Caribbean Marxism and third world Marxism. And so super excited for that. And he's extremely underrated. Like he is a very prolific writer um, and is super important to understanding even diaspora. So like so many um, other conceptual frameworks that matter. Um, so, and then my book, Black Scare, Red Scare will be out in 2023 with the University of Chicago Press. It covers many of the themes that we talked about here um, through sort of six, kind of um, artifacts or sort of case studies, um, including Angelo Herndon, the deportation of Marcus Garvey, um, the ra revolutionary radicalism or the Lust Committee report. And so the ways that these different, um, we charge genocide. So the way that these different um, um, documents or cases convey the imbrication of like the black scare and the red scare, and what I call the Black Scare, Red Scare, Long Durée, which is roughly between um, 1917 and 1954. Bunch of articles and other stuff, but those are the main, <laughs> those are the main points. Um, yeah, and you know, Black Alliance for Peace. Um, I'm always doing work in Black Alliance for Peace. Join Black Alliance for Peace if you are an, um, an African or the Black Alliance for Peace Solidarity Network if you are not. Um, Donate, support, read Black Agenda Report, read Hood Communist. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And I'm really excited for Black Scare, Red Scare. Uh, sounds absolutely phenomenal. And yeah, I really appreciate speaking with you. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank Bye. you so much for having me. Bye. Thanks.